Good morning. My name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's so great to have you with us. Um, It looks like the rain uh, has some of you at home, so we've got record online attendance. I haven't seen it yet, but I just believe um, this is the day um, that it is record attendance. So um, the good news is they told me since I wasn't here last week, I get double um, the time. Uh, So that's good. Um, Thank you all for coming to endure that. But uh, seriously, we've got a lot to cover today, not only in the message, but several things taking place. We've got baptisms, after the message. A couple of things I do want to make note of. We did this last year. Um, We've trimmed it down to just 25. Um, But after service, I'm going to ask you to um, uh, delay um, with this crowd. We should like be able to to fill those cards up because I know several are not here. Some are out of town like um, John, uh, Seidel, and Debbie, they're traveling to see family. And so we've got some cards for uh, pastors, um, uh, local and um, outside of the area that we um, have relationships with, that we pray for. Y'all have prayed for them. Um, and so uh, if you would take the time after service to go by those cards and um, write a little note to them, uh, let them know you're praying for them. Um, it's written in there where it's going. Um, as we keep in front of you, oftentimes it's not about new passion. It's, uh, we, we want to be about the global church. Um, in fact, we've got some opportunities to where um, we may be able to expand our reach well beyond anything we could ever think or imagine, like the scripture says. And so um, we don't want to just be about inside our walls. We want to be about the, the kingdom of God. And so uh, Easter is a very stressful time. And so if you would just let them know you're praying for them. On the left side of that table is a prayer sheet. So you can know who you're praying for and you've got their names and where they're at and things like that. There's another opportunity. There's some boxes that say change for churches. Um, And so there is a family of churches. Uh, They're now uh, 12, almost 13 strong um, uh, throughout the Southeast. And so uh, we're going to be partnering with them. What I'm asking for you, a lot of times we have pocket change. We don't like to carry that around. Um, you may keep it in a little jar or bucket or something like that, like we do. And so I've already emptied ours into one of the boxes, um, but there are boxes on the back ta- uh, table. There should be enough, one for each family. Plus um, we're getting a little late start. I'm about to show you a video that talks about it. Um, but this family of churches planted five churches just last year to the tune of the cost of um, $400,000 to start and revitalize churches. So once again, they're up to, they're about to uh, be 13. Um, There's a church uh, in North Carolina that um, they're starting to revitalize and things like that. And so when I saw it, when I saw their video, I was like, hey, how can we participate in this? Because we're about church planting, church revitalization, and the advancement of the gospel through the local church. And so after service, some of the boxes are put together, but most of them are stacked where you can put them together yourself. Um, And you and your family between now and the end of April, I think it's April 25th, uh, that that last Sunday, we'll bring it back and we'll send that to help participate in planting and revitalizing other churches. So real quick, we got a video, about a minute and a half video that shows you about that, talks about that. But then right after that, it's going to throw you for a whirlwind because there is a video that will set us up for the message. So totally two different videos, but you got to pay attention very closely. The one, was, the, the one for the message was really small. I tried to enlarge it, so hopefully you can see what's happening. So pay attention. There's going to be two videos back to back. I normally don't do this, but because it's a special day, all the rain, stuff like that, it's just a weird day. So y'all pay attention to the screen, and then I'll get into the message. 
only 22% of Americans attend a church gathering of any kind. 78% of our nation is currently unchurched. Sadly, that number continues to grow more rapidly now than ever. Over 30% of the population in the United States classifies themselves as religiously unaffiliated. According to ABC News, recently more churches have been closing rather than opening. But Jesus gave his life on the cross to create this family known as the church. The church has always been and always will be God's primary means for advancing the gospel in the world. Most of the apostles, along with thousands of other believers throughout time, have given their lives for this cause called the church. They love Jesus and his church in life and in death. And now it's our time to do the same. Change for Churches is an opportunity for us to show our love for Jesus, the church, and to help us advance the gospel in our nation. At each Hope Church location, a Change for Churches box will be available for each family to take home. Our prayer is that between now and Easter Sunday, which is April the 9th, at least 1,000 people from our Hope Church family are going to set aside enough of their change to give a gift of at least $100. Together, we can make an impact for the gospel. Together, we can truly change communities for the sake of Jesus Christ. Can I clean just, just give me just two minutes, please? Two minutes. Just like this. It's a deadlift, yes? Sorry, guys. You can do. I talk so much about going to the gym, I just thought y'all, I'd show y'all my routine. Um, I just go in as a janitor. But uh, anyway, um, no, the smaller custodian baffled the larger, uh, you know, weightlifters because he takes a set of weights, and, th- and this is, th- he's got several of these videos, they're genuine, uh, and he just easily picks them up and moves them out of the way where they're, they've been struggling to lift them and to get their workout in. Um, and it's very interesting, this, uh, the, there's a picture of the actual guy, the custodian's elite power lifter, Vladimir Shmandenko. Um, he may be small, but he's more powerful than guys who, in some cases, are twice his size. It's, if you look him up, I can uh, point him out on Instagram. Um, his, uh, he's got plenty of videos where he is just showing guys up, and they're just in shock at what he can lift compared to what they're lifting. And so it's fascinating to me when I saw that video, and what, knowing what I was uh, speaking on today, um, it's fascinating with something or someone that is much smaller, possesses much greater power than that which is larger, um, someone or it could be something. Uh, mice and elephants are a great example of this. Um, mice are nowhere the size of elephants, and so therefore they can't lift an elephant and move it, but being a fraction of an elephant's size, it can move the elephant out of fear. And so every one of us have a small control center in our brain called the amygdala. And we've talked about this before um, because we've looked at this passage before in another series. Um, But this control center is um, what is responsible for causing things in you like worry, fear, 
um, anxiety, all of those type things. The amazing thing is, it is the size of an almond. So something the size of the almond, or an almond, has the power to cause so much havoc and so much um, disruption in your life through things like worry, fear, anxiety. It also is what triggers the response through other parts of your brain, but it starts there in the fight or flight mentality and and reaction um, that we all know that we're kind of designed with. Some people fight and some people flight. And so think about, though, in your own life, how powerful something like fear and worry have been in your own life. Um, They're so powerful that it doesn't matter how tired you are, they'll keep you up at night. They'll they'll keep you from being able to go to sleep. They're so powerful that worry and fear and anxiety can control your heart rate. It can control your breathing. It controls your thinking. um, It controls your decision-making, and it can even paralyze you. And so something as small as an almond something very tiny that is in your brain has that much power to control you. Yet today in today's, uh, in today's passage, we're gonna, I'm going to back up. Um, Pastor Bunch did an amazing job last week. Got to listen to his message on the way home um, and start there, but then springboard into um, verses 8 to 9 today. But I want to get it in context, so I'm not trying to re-preach his message. Um, he began, began in verse 2, but we're going to be in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7 to begin with. I'm in the CSB. It's going to be in your outline as well. Um, it's going to be on the screen for you, um, or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. But Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, says, "'Don't worry about anything.'" But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to write this down. Our dominant thoughts determine the direction of our life. Our dominant thoughts determine the the direction of our life. I've told you this before. We've talked about this before. And I'm reintroducing it with a few extra kind of points to look at today. But William Barclay says this, The human mind will always set itself on something, and Paul wished to be quite sure that the Philippians would set their minds on the right things. This is something of the utmost importance, because it is a law of life, that if a man thinks of something often enough, he will come to the stage when he cannot stop thinking about it. His thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which he cannot jerk them. Therefore, of the first importance that a man should set his thoughts upon the fine things, and here Paul makes a list of them, and that's what we're going to look at beginning in verse um, 8 and 9 today. But we can get so focused on something that it really determines the direction of our life. It determines our decisions. It consumes our mind. And Paul here had every reason to be consumed with worry and fear. Not only is he in prison, but when he wasn't in prison, he was constantly under attack, constantly under threat, constantly being persecuted. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, it records one of my favorite stories of Paul when he was in Lystra 
and he's there to encourage the church, and he's there preaching the gospel, doing the work of Jesus, doing the right thing, and a mob comes up on him, and he, they, they stone him, and they leave him for dead, and the scripture tells us that when this happens, they didn't kill him, but instead he gets back up, and the next day goes back into the city and encourages the church. Like you want to talk about having a tough day and wanting to quit and wanting to just give up. I mean, if anything, in that moment, Paul would have given up. Many of us would have given up and said, it's not worth it. Like this isn't what I signed up for. Well, Paul didn't sign up for anything. Jesus saved him, called him into ministry and said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So he was called into this. He was equipped for this. And yet, Many of us would have quit in that moment because we would have focused on our circumstances. We would have focused on our suffering. And yet Paul is focused on the church. Paul is focused on the kingdom of God. He's focused on the people and encouraging them. And so this is the Paul who is now instructing the church at Philippi who is facing suffering and persecution and difficulty. And yet he's writing to us as Christians beyond them. And he tells us, don't worry about anything. Whether your problems surround finances, maybe it's uh, your career, or maybe it's um, you got a pay cut or um, laid off at work or whatever that might be. Maybe some major appliance or something went out at your house. I saw a friend of ours lost a thousand dollars worth of food um, because their refrigerator and freezer went out um, Friday night. And, and so you could be worried about that. You could be afraid of that. Um, maybe it's health Maybe it's your physical health, your mental health, your health, your emotional health. Um, there, maybe you've gotten a poor report. Maybe you've been told you've got, you're going to have to take treatments for things, whatever that might be. Maybe it's relationships, your family, parents, your children, your spouse, your kids, whatever that might be. Those things are what tend to distract us and to demand our attention to the place that we worry. And the thing is, is when it's big enough we feel like we can justify it. When it's big enough, we feel like, man, I mean, this is worthy of my worry. This is wor worthy of my concern. And yet he tells us, don't worry about anything. Don't let um, the amygdala, I always get that word wrong. I have to look that, at it again. Amygdala, I got it that right that time. Don't let something so small as the size of an acorn, control your life, control your thinking, control the direction of your life. Doesn't matter if it's a small issue or a big issue, don't worry about anything. Instead, so he now gives us the solution, he tells us the instruction, but he says, look, I'm not just leaving you here to try to figure it out on your own. Instead, he says, in everything, so don't worry about anything, but in those anythings, in everything, I want you through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If you're going to give attention to anything, let that attention be as you present it to God. If you're going to talk about anything that amounts to worry and amounts to fear, let that communication be to God, not to your neighbor, not to your, your friend, not to your... Yes, there's times we share prayer requests and things like that, but once it starts getting into the worry and the fear and the, 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 the uh, consuming our focus, he says, don't do that. Don't worry about anything. 
Instead, take those requests and those petitions with thanksgiving to God. In the 70s and 80s, scientists discovered that where previously they thought like if your brain was damaged, if um, you had a traumatic brain injury or those type things that like you were stuck. There, There was no repairing it. There was no fixing it. That was it. But in the 70s and 80s, they started to discover that the brain actually can begin to heal itself, not just from traumatic brain injuries, but also from traumatic scenarios and situations and historical events and things that you've um, dealt with throughout life. That through your thinking that you can actually uh, create new neurological pathways, it's a process called neuroplasticity. And it's been proven now that where your brain was developed maybe as a child through maybe some trauma, through some difficulty, that that will determine the direction of your life because that's the only neurological pathway that you have and that you know. But with the proper thinking and with the proper um, experiences and all of these different things that make up our life, our feelings and the things that we choose, that we can actually reshape our brain and those neurological pathways and create new ones through new experiences, through thinking the right way. Why? Because your dominant thoughts determine the direction of your life. It creates a groove, as William Barclay says, that will completely consume your entire life. There are people who all they talk about is their trouble. All they talk about is their hurt. All they talk about is their past experiences, their past problems, and yet they don't live in the future. It paralyzes them. It creates a whole pathway by which their life travels. Your thoughts, feelings, choices, and experiences, whether good or bad, literally shape your brain literally shape your thinking and how you process information. Because our brain has the ability to change, we must be intentional when it comes to how we think and what we think on and what we give the attention to in our life. We must think in good, healthy ways rather than in toxic, destructive ways. Why? Because it will determine the direction of our decisions, and the direction of your decisions will always determine the direction of your life. The decisions you make will determine the direction of your life, and the decisions you make are oftentimes made out of those feelings and those emotions and what you think on. And for too many people, the amygdala, a small almond-sized thing in your brain, has the power to control your life because it is controlling your life. Fear, worry, anxiety. And we've seen that only on the, uh, uh, in, you know, on the rise and really blow up since 2020. It's proven. They're seeing the um, fallout and the after effects after all of the pandemic and all of the shutdowns and all of the things that happened during that time. So you can write this down because he tells us that instead of worry, with prayer and petitions, with thanksgiving, to make our requests known to God. Prayer is God's tool to reshape your thinking. Prayer is God's tool to reshape your thinking. In fact, it was in 2020 when I brought this truth out to you based on a study and what it has revealed. In fact, I texted to someone this week. Studies reveal that when a person prays for a minimum of 12 minutes per day, 
over an eight-week time period that the transformation of the brain is so evident that it literally shows up on brain scans. That they took a group of people, they scanned their brain, they did a study, and then they had them pray for a minimum of 12 minutes a day. That is easy. It's easy. You take that list of 25 uh, pastors and you pray for 30 seconds for each of those, and you're at 12 minutes, right? Is my math right? You pray for them, their church, their, their team, their family. I mean, you just pray for four or five things for each of those people, and you've got 12 minutes covered. And um, you start praying for your family. You start praying for your needs. You start praying for your church. 12 minutes is easy, but it's the discipline and the habit of prayer that we have to learn to get into. Because for some of us, we were never discipled. For some of us, we were never taught to, to prioritize that in our life. And so now as an adult, your thinking has been shaped and it's been grooved to where you just kind of go along to get along. You go, you, you go by what's bringing you pleasure. You go with whatever is convenient. You go with whatever's demanding your time in that moment rather than scheduling it and planning it out. And, and making it a priority. And so we have to change our thinking when it comes to prayer. Because if you pray for a minimum of, of just 12 minutes a day over an eight-week period, even science says, even atheists have had to agree with this, that it literally changes your brain. It literally changes your, thanksgiving, your, your thinking. But God literally gives us the tool to help reshape that, and that is prayer and thanksgiving. He tells us, he says, don't worry about anything. Don't give the amygdala that power over yourself. Yes, I gave you that. And, and, and there's a use for that. Like if you walk up on, say, a copperhead or, you know, a rattlesnake, like it, it should be natural that you're going to respond in a certain way. Some of you are going to run away. Some of you are going to pick up a rock and kill it. That's what I do. And then sometimes people go, oh, that was just a garden snake. Whatever. I don't care. It's a snake. Didn't take time to figure out what kind of snake. It was a snake. And so God gave you that for certain uh, purposes, but not to allow it to control and dictate your life. And so he tells us instead of worry, I want you to pray. And I want you to pray with thanksgiving. And as we do this, supernaturally, he tells us, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is a supernatural act. And the reason some of us are not living um, with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in our life is because we're not following this truth of instead of giving our thoughts over to worry and fear, transforming it into prayer and thanksgiving, we're worrying. We're giving into fear. We're allowing the amygdala to control us. And so therefore, we, our hearts and minds are not protected supernaturally as the Bible promises us to do. And we talk about this often. Do we believe that God's word is true? Do we believe that this is absolute truth to lead and guide and direct our life? Because if it is, then we have to take this for truth and go, man, Paul told us that if we don't worry and we pray and make our petitions known to God with thanksgiving, then the peace of God, what's the, what, 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 what is anxiety? This is the absence of peace, right? What, what's fear? 
Fear is the absence of peace, right? Worry is the absence of peace. So he says, you don't have to worry. You don't have to give in to fear. You don't have to give in to anxiety. Why? Because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that's why it's supernatural. We can't always understand it. Like, why am I at peace in this moment? Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, the suffering is great, whatever, but, but I'm content. I'm at peace. I don't even understand it. I don't know how to give word to it. Why? Because you're following the truth of God's word, whether you know it or not. See, these truths are transferable, whether you know it or not. He says it'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a truth given to us for those of us who we are in Christ Jesus, we're in fellowship with him, we're in communion with him, and we are walking with him, and our prayer is our opportunity to have that relationship with him, to talk to him, to not only make needs for others known, but our own petitions, and we do so with thanksgiving. And so I wonder if you're not just wondering, but I challenge you that if you're being controlled by worry, if you're being controlled by fear, maybe it's time to turn off the TV, to stop scrolling on social media, to turn off the music, to, um, to, to turn off those distractions, those things that you're giving your life to, and you begin to make prayer a priority. You begin to make that time where you commune with God and you enter into his presence with thanksgiving and making your petitions known that if you're going to those worries and those concerns at all, you do so in prayer before God. Or you do so among those people that you know will join with you, not in having a pity party and not in telling you, well, you deserve better and not all of those things, but those people you know do not take prayer time as gossip time, but it's an opportunity to go, hey, I will join with you in prayer. I, I will bring these needs before our Father with you and alongside of you. That's what we need to do. Turn off the distractions and make prayer a priority. Now, verse 8 and 9 tells us, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Um, because I just preached this in 2020 when we were doing a series on the mind and thinking, and it was through the pandemic, and um, I actually preached this message because I kind of looked back on it um, uh, from the beach, and I was actually like, wow, how did I remember amygdala on the camera without like any notes? Because it was a miracle of God, um, especially at the beach. And so because it was so fresh and we've talked about it so recently, I was like, I, I want to kind of look at how other people have presented the same truth, maybe in a fresh way. And so a friend of mine, Dr. David McKinley, he's pastor here locally. Um, he broke this down into seven tests for our thinking. And I loved it. Out of everything that I saw, I was like, this is great. Because as we're thinking, as we're giving power to our thoughts, giving attention to our thoughts, these are seven tests that we can um, practice that will help us determine if what we're thinking aligns with God's word. First one is this, the reliability test. The reliability test. Is it true? Is what you're thinking true? 
Because all too often in today's time, our thoughts are shaped by our emotions, by our feelings, by culture, and even by politics. And so our thinking doesn't align with the truth of God's word. It's not reliable because it's being rooted in something outside of the truth. Maybe it sounds true. Maybe it sounds good. But at the end of the day, it's not true. And so in those moments where you feel something maybe about someone, you feel something about yourself, you feel something about a situation, you have to stop and put into practice the reliability test and go, is this reliable? Is this true? Is what I'm thinking objectively true? Are my thoughts grounded in God's word and what he has revealed in truth? What God has revealed in truth. Look, I'll just be honest with you. There, there are many people in today's culture and society who will approach relationships in such a way simply and solely based on emotion. Um, I know people who have been married, they've been divorced, and now they're back in a relationship. And, and let's just be honest, I don't know the youngest in here, but if they're in here, um, you know, we're adults, and so they may hear adult conversations. Um, but they will approach things like sex as being, look, I've already had sex because I've been married. So why do I need to be married to, again to have sex because I'm already used to having sex and so we love each other and all of a sudden what God's word says about marriage and sex and how sex is designed and good and something to be celebrated within the bounds of marriage all of a sudden become a cultural or an emotional thing rather than a God's word thing because of how I feel. Because I can justify in my mind that I've already been married, I've already done that, I've already had sex, and so why, why, you know, why wait for marriage again? Things like that. Cultural, emotional, feelings. In fact, um, a lot of people today are making long-term, life-altering decisions based on what culture tells them is right and acceptable according to what makes them feel good in the moment. And there are so many things that I can talk about, whether it be our identity and gender issues and on and on, but it all comes back down to does it make you feel better about yourself or do you think it'll make you feel better about yourself and therefore then do it? Because whatever makes you feel good and right is right. And as we know, just because a majority of the people are doing something does not make it right. Just because a majority of the people say it's right doesn't make it right. That's why the scripture tells us wide is the road to destruction and narrow the path to life. Just because the majority is doing it doesn't make it right. Yet that's what our culture is teaching rather than objective truth. There are things we used to even point to scientifically. People go science and, and religion, science and Christianity clash. No, they don't. All through scripture, um, science for years, my dad uh, has a message and I tried to find it. He used to have it on tape, but my dad's a pastor for those that don't know and pastoring a church bivocationally right now. But he used to have a, a sermon called What a Book. And he went through, and it was more like an apologetics type sermon, but he went through the scripture and how thousands of years ago where it was written and God inspired how science is just now catching up. And it's amazing because science is now, well, we've discovered this or whatever, and it could be something with the atmosphere or whatever it might be. And yet scripture for thousands of years has been declaring it as true. 
So there is no conflict between truth and religion and science. They go hand in hand. But we live in a culture today that even ignores the truth that science has revealed and come to the conclusion of in order to appease the emotions of people and the feelings of people. We have to approach life from the objective truth of God's word and our thinking and go, this might be how I feel. I understand that feelings are strong, so strong that the amygdala can control your whole life if you give it that power, an almond-sized thing in your brain. Yet, we have a guide, and we have a protection, and we have a test to go, is this reliable? Is this true? Is this from God's Word? Because as Dr. McKinley pointed out, most people look at things from two perspectives today. Does it work? Does it work for me? Does it work from a, maybe an initial standpoint? Hey, let's, let's live together before we get married to see if it works. Does it work? Pragmatism. And how does it make me feel? Emotionalism. So most of our decisions are not based on the truth of, not, I wouldn't say most of our decisions, but the temptation is for some people, especially in the world, to look through the lens of pragmatism and emotionalism. Does it work? Does it work for me? And how does it make me feel? Scripture never goes and says, hey, I'm going to give you this truth because it works for you in your thinking and your mind. No, it says um, God's ways are not our ways. I, I don't want a God who aligns with me all the time. Sometimes I need my toes stepped on. Sometimes I need correction. That's what God's word says. It is given to us, yes, to point out what is right in our life, but also to rebuke us, to show us what is wrong in our life. Why? Because it's not our standard. You, the, the universe doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. It's God's universe. It's his will that must be done. And so he gives us truth, not so we will feel good, Although I believe when we are in the perfect will of God, that perfect peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our heart and mind. You will be content. You will have joy. But he doesn't give it to you going, hey, this is going to feel good right now. You're immediately going to understand why I'm calling you to this or asking you to do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to give you this truth because immediately you're going to understand how that works in your life. No, oftentimes I have to look back like 12 years, 15 years and go, ah, I get it now. But yet, that's how we look at things. God's truth isn't always going to look like it works. God's truth isn't always going to feel good immediately. But if we submissively follow in line and in path with him, with his word and with his truth, then that peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our heart and mind. If you don't like what his word says, take it to him in prayer with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you've given me your word. Thank you for the truth. I do not understand it. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good, but I'm bringing it to you. I'm asking you to align my heart with your will my mind with your will. Help me to understand it. Help me. You have a, a, a the, the Holy Spirit, the true and living God living within you. He is not far from you. He's not up in heaven distant from you. He dwells within you to 
help and enable you to do his perfect will. And so we have to ask, is it true? Romans 8, 5, and 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Dr. Chris Thurman says this, Most of our emotional struggles, relational difficulties, and spiritual setbacks are caused by lies that we tell ourselves and we believe. The longer a lie is repeated and perpetuated in our minds, the more convinced we are of its truth. It's that groove that William Barclay talked about. Thoughts produced after their own, thoughts produced after their own kind. Lies produce death. Truth produces life. That's what scripture tells us. Tells us. Our dominant thoughts determine the direction of our life. If your thoughts are guided by pragmatism and emotionalism, while it might feel good or seem right in the moment, it will always lead you in error. A mindset on the spirit will lead you to life and peace. A mindset on the flesh will lead to death and destruction. It is always, always true. The second test is the quality test. Is it honorable? Is it honorable? The Greek text here used refers to a religious ceremony. Is my thinking something holy, worthy of praise, or worthwhile? Is there a, a weight to it that would be worthy? Um, our thinking is an act of worship. Our worship begins in our mind. Because you can't come in here if you're consumed with worry and anxiety and fear and allowing your mind to stay there and genuinely and truly worship God. Your thoughts have to be honorable. The quality test, is it honorable? Is this giving worship to God? What are you setting your mind on? What are you filling your mind with? Those things matter because those are the things that you will dwell on and think on. Is it trash? Is it toxicity? Is it negativity? Is it cynicism? Is it things of that, that, of being critical? Is it carnality? Is it destructive? Is it that which builds up or that which tears down? It, are your thoughts negative, worldly, or are your thoughts that which is honorable, of great worth? Are they worshipful? So when you start to think in a certain way, when you start to uh, have those thoughts consume your mind, you can enact the quality test. First, is it reliable? Is it true? Second, does this give glory to God? Maybe it's a thought about yourself. Th does this give glory to the God who created me? Th is this worshiping the, the creator God who made me as I am? So, so there are many questions that you can ask yourself along these lines, or am I being cynical? Am I being negative? Am I being destructive in my thoughts, because that's the direction your life will go. Number three, the integrity test. Is it just? Is it just? The integrity test. Injustice is a reality of a fallen world. Every one of us have faced injustice in some way, although some have faced it to such an experience and to such a level that it has really um, harmed and damaged your life. It's done some great damage. And so I understand that. We live in a day that there's a lot of talk about justice. There's a lot of talk about injustice. 
But there's a difference in seeking justice, God's way, and making yourself a victim. Because that's what our culture encourages. Our culture encourages not true justice, but victimization. To think of yourself as a victim. Once again, mindset. Creating that groove. It's very hard once you create that groove to get out of that groove. Paul was a victim. Paul faced many injustices. Jesus was a victim. Jesus faced great injustices. But how did he respond? The holy, perfect Son of God was crucified on a criminal's cross, unjustly, unjustly, doing nothing wrong. But instead of being a victim, what did he do? He could have been on the cross and said, hey, Father, this is wrong. This is unjust. I'm an innocent man. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he even got there, he could have declared his innocence and said, I'm not doing this because this is wrong. This is unfair. And he could have looked at himself and he could have had a victim mentality. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. Instead of choosing victimization, he chose forgiveness. Instead of choosing victimization, he chose to allow his life to be made a ransom for many. He took that which made himself a victim and he used it for our benefit, for our own justice. And so Jesus did not allow himself to be a victim, but we see in this culture, Paul did not allow himself to be a victim, but we see this in this culture. And what victimization does is it leads to self-vindication and justice-seeking according to our own standard of justice, not God's standard of justice. So we start demanding our own way. We start demanding our own justice. The problem is, is when everyone's demanding their own version of justice, then there is no justice. Because you're going to have your idea. Someone else is going to have their idea. And so there's no truth and reliability in the justice because it's just based on how everyone feels and what works for them. But Jesus showed us what true justice looks like and it's brought to us through the gospel. In fact, Romans tells us this in chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And many of you know my story of suffering with, uh, not suffering, struggling. Um, I, it was my own doing. Um, it wasn't me like it happened to me. Um, with bitterness and anger and those things by past hurts. And this was one of the passages that helped free me and quit demanding my own version of justice. Romans 12, 16 through 21 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. 
I don't have time to really break this down. It's pretty clear and self-explanatory. This is the, the instruction given to us. We can look and we can see the same given to us by Jesus where he could demand justice. God could demand justice of you. And how many of you want what you deserve from God? None of us. In fact, the whole saying, and I know other people have said this before as well, like only God can judge me. You don't want God to judge you based on your works and your, what you deserve. But real quick, because I don't have the time to really break it down, I do want to point out that heaping hot coals on their head is not to bring punishment or to bring harm to them. It is actually a process by which it would bring people to repentance and reconciliation quicker. So here, instead of demanding my own justice in my own way, he says, I want you to love your enemy. I don't want you to pay back evil for evil. I want you to do what Jesus did on the cross for you. I want you to love your enemy, feed your enemy, clothe your enemy, and in so doing, it will bring them to repentance and to reconciliation quicker. Do not pay back. I will pay back. You know what? I think I'd rather God pay back than me pay back. If, if, if there's any paying back to do, God can do a far better job than I can. But what does he say before he gets to that? It's all about reconciliation. So even if you see someone go through the discipline of God, you're not going to feel great about it because your heart is set on reconciliation. Your heart is set on their good and not their harm. So even if you see them go through something that might be God's discipline in their life, it's not like you're like, whoo yes, finally. No, that's your idea of justice. He wants us to bring our heart to reconciliation, to repentance, to forgiveness, because that's what he did for us. Real quick, number four, the purity test. Is it pure? To be pure is to be free from con uh, contamination. As Dr. McKinley pointed out on this point, our culture is obsessed with environmental purity more than the purity of soul. We're so worried about eating organic and, and clean water and clean air and pure this and pure that, but yet we're so far from wanting a pure soul. We're leading our children and young people down a path that will lead to their destruction, to their harm for a long time. Our thinking is not pure. It's full of um, being critical and carnal when it comes to people, when it comes to certain things. Our society is not pointing towards purity, but we as a church must. We as a church must point to that which is not contaminated and toxic and destructive. Number five, the charity test. Is it lovely? Is it lovely? The charity test. The Greek verb for that means, uh, it points to meaning for love and care, um, brotherly love. Uh, and so the question we have to ask ourselves with this test is, am I thinking best about someone or is my thinking the worst about them? Am I hoping for the worst for them or is my thinking and my heart towards the best for them? This is why your circle of friends and even family are vital because some are uh, some of your negative and uncharitable thoughts about others is based on someone else's opinion and not your own experience. You, you want to talk about this? I mean, in the world of pastors, this is horrible. And if any ever tunes into this and hears me, you know it's true. 
because everyone wants to have their circle of friends and their, those that they'll associate with. And because this pastor might have said something to this one that maybe he just took the wrong way, but didn't mean it the wrong way, but this one got upset. Now, because this pastor, that pastor and this pastor over here were friends, now he can't be friends with this pastor. It's no different than just humanity because y'all have seen some of that. It's on TV, like mean girls and things like that. It's no different with pastors. And, and, and so in your relationships, in your family, some of you have ill thoughts about other people, not based on your own experience, but based on what someone else told you they said or did or whatever. And you don't even know if it's what? True. If it's reliable. Your experience hasn't been that. But because someone said it, and they might be looking at it from what? Emotionalism. We've now formed a truth that's not true, it's error, but it's not charity. It's not charitable. It's not grace. It's not mercy. It's not the gospel. It's based on someone else's emotion that they've allowed to be a groove in their life that now has become their truth, but not the truth. And so we have to be careful with what we accept and what we just embrace because we tend to judge people based on their single worst moment, whether it's by hearsay or whether it's by experience, rather than what we want, and that's our best intentions. We want people to judge our intentions. We judge their motivation. We judge their failure, even if it's just one time. But we want people to judge us by our good intentions. That's not what I meant. That's not what I intended. Give me grace. Give me peace. Give me patience. Give me forgiveness. Yet, do we give that same consideration to other people? The charity test. Is it lovely? Number six, the memory test. Is it commendable? A commendation is a recognition and a public acknowledgement of something a person has done that's worthy of praise. I've been able to have the honor of participating in some of these with um, uh, the military within our ch uh, church family where they've received commendations. It's a great opportunity to celebrate that achievement. And so with us, when it says, um, is it commendable for our thoughts to be commendable, um, that carries with it a, a gratitude and a thanksgiving. And so it's um, really having our mind focused on the gospel, a thanksgiving for Jesus and the good news, the gospel of grace and forgiveness and those things. Do those things consume our mind? And those who, with this last point, those who are being baptized can go get ready. I know we have one. Um, and uh, as we close after the final song, we'll do baptisms. Um, but if you need to get ready, you can. Um, the final one is this, the superiority test. The superiority test. Is it anything that's excellent and worthy of praise? It's like a catch-all. It's like me, I'm over time, out of time. And so it's just kind of like, hey, let's just kind of wrap this up really quick. Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? We have to make sure our thoughts are consumed with the character of Christ. At the end of the day, if, you've, if you can't remember all of these tests, you can go, is it reliable? Because truth has to guide us in all things. Is it true? Is it reliable? But then, even if all you can remember is, is this excellent and worthy of praise? Like, would someone praise me? Would someone uh, give me a commendation and recognize me for having this thought? 
Is this a thought that I could say from the stage of the church? Is this a thought that people would go, man, your thinking is so Christ-like? Because that is the gauge. That, that's kind of the final wrap it up. Like, here's the, the large umbrella. Is it excellent? And is it worthy of praise? Is it true? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it honorable? Is it worthy of praise? God is bigger than your amygdala. So don't allow an almond-sized piece of your brain to control your life and to consume your life and to rob you from the peace that God desires for you. The, the, the peace that will surround you and protect you and guard your heart and your mind. We as the church, we as the family of God should be in a totally different emotional and mental category than the world. We should have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We should have a contentment and a joy that is, uh, that, that is unspeakable to the world, to where they're coming to us and going, while you're dealing with this in life, how can you be so joyful? How can you be at such peace? And you can be, point them to the truth of God's word and go, I don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, I make my needs known to God. Let me tell you about this, God. I'm going to pray for us, and then as I pray, the worship team's going to come up and close us out with one final song. We have baptisms, and then I'll close us out with a few announcements, so let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for the truth of your word and how it supersedes science. I, I thank you that in the 70s and 80s that um, we've been shown through science that, Lord, prayer um, can shape our brains. It can heal our brains. It can, it can transform them in a positive way. I thank you that you created us with things like a, the amygdala, but, Lord, it's not intended to control us. And so I thank you for the use of it, but, God, I also thank you for the use of prayer. I thank you for the truth of your word and that you have given it to us as a guide, as a test that, Lord, whatever we're dealing with in life, whatever we're going through, whatever we're thinking and whatever we're feeling, whatever the world tells us to think and feel, we can look to your word and we can find objective truth that will lead us into all of peace and all of that which is joyful. And that, Lord, as we practice it, as we obey, as we walk in faith, because sometimes it's hard, but we walk in faith that your word promises us a supernatural response that your peace will surround us and protect us. It will guard our hearts and our minds. Lord, this is a day that we need you to guard our hearts and minds. So help us to take the steps that you have told us to take. Not to worry about anything, but through prayer and thanksgiving to make our needs known to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.